what is up to you are your judgments, your opinions, your values, and your decisions to act or not to act. That's it. Nothing else. What is not up to you is your body, your reputation, your wealth, and pretty much everything else. Now, the first time you read that, it's like, what is he talking about? G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Massimo Pigliucci was raised in Rome, Italy, and has made an unusual transition through the course of his life, from being a professor of ecology and evolution at Stony Brook University, uh, to now being a professor of philosophy at the City University of New York. He's written a fabulous new book on Stoicism, which is going to be the focus of our conversation today. And that's where I thought I'd start. Massimo, tell us about your evolution, from being a professor of evolution to a professor of philosophy. What drew you to philosophy? Yeah, it's a little unusual, uh, isn't it? Um, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I, I grew up in Italy uh, where I had studied philosophy in high school because that's, you know, it's mandatory, it's like three years of philosophy. And I had, uh, I was lucky three enough Three years have, of philosophy for a high school yeah, kid. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And I was lucky enough to have a teacher that was absolutely incredible and, and made the, the subject matter really come alive. And so that that's how I got into philosophy. But I already had decided that I wanted to pursue a career as a scientist. So when I went to college, I uh, studied biology. Then I did my doctorate, you know, the usual academic uh, sort of career. But I kept an eye on philosophy, so to speak, mostly philosophy of science, uh, which, of course, is the most uh, closely related field of philosophy to science itself. Mm. Um, and so that went on for a number of years. Uh, I went through the, the standard academic career, you know, PhD, postdoc, assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. And then at that point, uh, sort of midlife crisis, you know, hit. Um, and, um, you know, nothing unusual, uh, but there were a few things but in a part particular year that were going on both at a personal level and a professional level that sort of uh, made me wonder about, ah, okay, what do I want to do next? Um, and typically, when an academic gets to that point, the what to do next becomes, you know, you start looking at nearby fields. Let's say I was in evolutionary biology, I might have looked into molecular biology or, or ecology or something like that. And um, instead of doing that, um, what happened was that I was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville as a faculty, and they um, hired, the philosophy department there hired a brilliant young philosopher named Jonathan Kaplan, who, who had just defended his, defended his thesis at Stanford. And his thesis happened to be on uh, the philosophical aspects of the nature-nurture nature question, the interaction between nature and nurture, which was exactly what I was working on as a scientist. Mm. And so Jonathan, in fact, had, had, was aware of my work and had cited some of my uh, papers in his dissertation. And so when he found out that I was on campus and we were going to be colleagues, he looked me up and he said, you know, I'd like to get a cup of coffee and start chatting about things. And one thing led to another. We, we hit it off very well. We became friends. 
we started actually collaborating on joint papers. And then at some point, the, the, the thought struck me. It's like, hey, Jonathan, how about, you know, I've been looking for to do something different. How about I, uh, I enroll in the PhD program in the philosophy department and you uh, serve as my advisor? To which Jonathan looked at me and said, you know, how many glasses of wine did you have today? And, <laughs> and I said, none, because it's lunchtime. I don't drink at lunch. Um, so it kind of, he was a little stunned, and, but then he warmed up to the idea. You know, remember, I was actually a full professor and, and you know, senior faculty. He was an untenured assistant professor, so it was a very unusual situation. But we went to the dean, we made the proposal, the dean accepted it. And so for three years, I kept my lab going in, uh, in biology. And then in the afternoon, I would cross campus and take courses in philosophy. Uh, and then eventually I defended my dissertation. Um, and then at that point, the program was not, you know, the, the idea was not actually to move to philosophy full time. I just wanted to get a m much better grounding in philosophy of science so that I could write papers in that, in that area. Um, but a few years later, I was, uh, by that time, I was in, uh, in the Northeast, back in the Northeast of the United States, and uh, I really wanted to move to New York uh, because, you know, because it's a wonderful city. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I said, okay, but I need a job. And so I, I thought, well, the first job that comes out, I'm going to apply. If it's philosophy, it's philosophy. If it's biology, it's biology. The first job turned out to be in philosophy. I applied, they hired me, and here I am. So you are uh, your doctor, Doctor Pagliucci, then. That's right, I guess. <laughs> uh, and uh, and did Stoicism come immediately? Was that, uh, that that your focus, or were you drawn to other areas? I know you've uh, you've spoken a little bit about your uh, your early attraction to Buddhism. Right now, uh, Stoicism came a little later, but the process started about the same time. Remember, I mentioned this this sort of midlife crisis, which was not only professional but but personal. You know, a number of things that happened during a particular year. My father died. Uh, my wife at the time divorced me. Uh, I moved to another city. So it was like a number of things happened. And um, all of a sudden, I found myself in a situation where like, okay, I need some guidance here. I need some, some framework uh, that helps me think about this stuff. And, you know, I grew up Catholic in, in Rome, of course. Uh, but I left the church when I was a teenager uh, because I didn't get satisfactory answers to questions that I was asking uh, to the priests on, uh, in, uh, on, uh, on Sunday. And Bertrand and Russell ever... drew you away as well, I understand. Yeah, exactly. Bertrand Russell, you know, reading uh, how to be, uh, why I'm not a Christian, so, so was, was definitely a, uh, helpful. And then uh, at some point, I, I considered myself a secular humanist for a long time. But when the, the midlife crisis came, it turned out, I discovered to my surprise that secular humanism was actually not very useful. And, and the reason for that is because, you know, it basically amounts to a list of things that I agree with, you know, human rights and, you know, uh, education and healthcare and all that sort of stuff. That's all great. But when you get into a point where you have a personal crisis and you say, okay, what, what am I going to do now with my life? And, you know, how should I think about stuff? Uh, those kind of general principles were not were not very useful. So I actually, so I thought, well, I'm a philosopher. Surely, if the answer is going to come from somewhere, this is going to be from philosophy. And um, that's when I tried Buddhism because you know lots of people were talking to me about, oh well, you should really take a look at Buddhism. The problem with that I found with Buddhism is that it was just too alien to my way of thinking and my way of reading. You know, I read some of the texts, both modern and a little bit earlier. 
And it, they just didn't speak to me. And I'm sure that's, that's the result of you know, cultural upbringing. But nevertheless, and, and also some of the metaphysics, I just couldn't wrap my head around, you know, the uh, karma and the reincarnation and all that, that stuff. It's like, no, that's not going to work. But I did have this feeling that the answer was going to come from somewhere similar. And I immediately started looking at what philosophers call virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is a approach to ethics, to, a pers to personal life that was uh, very popular in ancient uh, Greece and Rome, although there are non-Western kinds of virtue ethics, such as Confucianism, for instance. And, um, and it's about character. It's about making the right decisions. It's about orienting yourself in the world. So I said, oh, that sounds good. Um, so I started looking into it. And the first stop when, when you look into virtue ethics is usually Aristotle. So I started, because he wrote the book, basically, uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. And so I started looking into Aristotle. It was interesting, but there were a few things that didn't really sit well with me. And Aristotelian virtue ethics is pretty aristocratic. And he said basically that in order to live a good life, what the, what, what the ancients called the eudaimonic life, a life worth living, um, you have to have a good, you know, work on your character and, and practice sort of these, these things called virtues that maybe we're going to get to talk about later. But also, you know, you need a little bit of money, a little bit of education, even a little bit of good looks, otherwise your life sucks. And I say, well, that, that just doesn't, that doesn't seem right. Um, so I moved to the next obvious stop, which was Epicurus. Epicureanism is also a type of virtue ethics. And, uh, and you know, Epicurean, Epicurus had a lot of interesting things to say. I liked his emphasis on, on friendship as fundamental in life, you know, developing and, and cultivating friendship. Uh, I like his, his notion that a good life doesn't require, uh, you know, a lot of things. In fact, contrary to the modern sense of the term Epicurean, uh, the ancient Epicureans were definitely not into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, so to speak. Uh, so it was a very kind of minimalist, very, very simple lifestyle. I said, oh, that sounds good. But then uh, it turns out that uh, Epicurus uh, also said, you, you know, you, you also need to stay away from social and political involvement because they're painful. And, and um, you know, they're mentally and emotionally painful. And the major goal of an Epicurean is actually to live a life without pain. So I said, well, that sounds nice. But no, I can't, I can't imagine myself living a life with no political or, or uh, social involvement. So that was out. Mm. And then one day I was uh, on my Twitter feed of all, th of all things. And I see this thing, that, that this tweet that says, uh, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I thought, what the hell is Stoic Week? And why is anybody wants to celebrate the Stoics? Uh, but then I remember, it's like, wait a minute, the Stoics. So that's Marcus Aurelius. I read Marcus Aurelius' meditations in, in college. Um, and then that's, that's also Seneca. And I translated Seneca from Latin when I was in high school. But I never put the two together. I never actually thought that they were actually representatives of sort of a, a coherent philosophy of life. So I said, oh, okay, let's try so I signed up, and Stoic Week, which happens every year this year, is going to be sometime in October. Uh, basically, you sign up, you download some material pertinent to uh, Stoicism, you know, basic introduction to it, some, some uh, literature, and then some exercises, practical exercises, uh, different kinds of meditations and journaling, uh, things like that. And I did it, and it immediately struck a chord with me. Uh, the first Stoic that I read... Uh, at that time was uh, a guy named Epictetus, who was a major Stoic philosopher of the early 2nd century, 
he, he had an incredible life. He started out as a slave uh, in uh, Hierapolis, which is in modern Western Turkey, and then he was brought to the court of the Emperor Nero, and then he was freed, and, and then he started uh, speaking, you know, truth to power, as we would say today, to the emperor, a uh, later emperor, Domitian, and Domitian didn't like that, so he exiled Epictetus to uh, northwestern Greece. And the guy went there and established this school, which became the most famous uh, school of that century. You know, a later emperor, Adrian, became a friend, came to visit and all that. And, and when I started reading Epictetus, it immediately struck me as the right guy for me because he has a basically sarcastic sense of humor. Um, he, he speaks, you know, with no qualms. He just tells you what it what how he sees it. Uh, it was so refreshing that I, I said, okay, I need to take this thing more seriously and practice uh, and, and study this um, beyond the, the, the week, beyond Stoic Week, which I did. And, and I started, I committed to do it until the end of that year, another couple of months, and then I, I decided to commit for another year uh, because even my, my own friends were saying, hey, you seem much more calm and much more together. What the hell happened? And I said, well, let me tell you about this guy. His name is Epictetus. Um, and here we are, several years later, still talking about it. And your book, How to Be a Stoic, is constructed in, in part as, as a conversation with Epictetus, which I think is uh, uh, both um, uh, brash and delightful, uh, in the, particularly when you have your, uh, your, your passages of uh, walking uh, through uh, ancient Rome, talking to, uh, to, to Epictetus. Uh, what you say you chose him uh, because of his style? I just find it interesting because most people, uh, when they talk about Stoicism, uh, talk about Marcus Aurelius and, and Seneca rather than Epictetus. Is it the slightly irreverent style that drew you to him? Well, it's more than slightly. It's definitely irreverent. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it's interesting that you're, you're absolutely right that most people today talk about Marcus Aurelius and to some extent Seneca. Although Epictetus is kind of coming back, he's having a comeback, uh, and, and deservedly so. Uh, interestingly, Epictetus was actually the more famous of the three for most of the past two millennia, uh, because uh, among other things, he was um, uh, one of his books, the handbook, the, the, uh, the Enchiridion, which is a handbook for living your life, um, was actually adopted as a manual for spiritual exercises by the Catholic Church. So it was used by monks in monasteries, monasteries throughout the Middle Ages. And then in more recent times, Epictetus had a major impact on a lot of people that uh, we know had, had a major role in sort of the shaping of the modern world, from philosophers like uh, Baruch Spinoza and René Descartes to politicians like uh, Benjamin Franklin and uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. All of these people had read uh, Epictetus and they, they really uh, thought that this, this guy had, had the right idea about how to live life. Uh, Epictetus kind of went into an eclipse at the beginning of the 20th century. Ironically, since we mentioned Bertrand Russell uh, before, ironically, this was probably at least in part of the fact that uh, philosophy turned so-called analytical at the beginning of the 20th century, largely through logicians like Bertrand Russell, uh, and so they moved away from sort of the, the, the philosophy conceived as a uh, way of life, as, a, as the art of life, and embraced more sort of logicism and, uh, and, and uh, 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 analytical approach to philosophical problems. And so Epictetus kind of lost uh, preeminence, but, but we're trying to bring him back because he's definitely worth reading. 
You talk about uh, the centrality of virtue to uh, to Stoicism. Uh, tell us what that means about what isn't important in life. If virtue is is the thing. Yeah. So so the first thing to understand about virtue is that it, unfortunately it's a bad translation, or it's not a be- not the best translation of the original Greek word. The original Greek word is arete, which is uh, better translated as excellence. So the goal of Stoicism is, is to make you make us into the best human beings we can be, right? the most excellent human beings, particularly the most moral, most ethical human beings that we can manage to be. Um, the, the, the word arete is often translated as virtue, but virtue immediately brings up so the Judeo-Christian, especially the Christian uh, version of, of, of the virtues, you know, hope, faith, charity, things like that, purity, things like that. Um, but those are not. It also the makes you virtues. think about people you wouldn't really want to have at a party, right? I mean, that's the great thing. Yeah, about exactly. the Epic- Epicureans that they they seem they seem pretty cool guys, whereas uh, being exactly. the obsession with virtues feels a bit nerdy. Absolutely, uh, and so, but but that isn't what what the Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus are talking about. In fact, what they're talking about is the four what the, what used to be called the four cardinal virtues, and these are practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Uh, practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is really good for you and not or not good for you. So um, one of the fundamental uh, stoic attitudes is that what most people tell you is good for you, it's actually not that good. Most people, if your mother tells you that uh, what you should try to do in life is to become famous, rich, and uh, and so on, and, and have a large house and all that sort of stuff, those are actually not good things for you. They're pleasurable for sure, uh, and they can be selected other things being equal, but they shouldn't be the goal of your life because they're not really truly good. What's truly good uh, for you is a good judgment, is exercise, the ability to exercise a good judgment. Why is that? Well, that because good judgment allows you to use everything else in the best possible way. If you have bad judgment, it doesn't matter that you're rich or famous or, you know, have a big house. Eventually, you're going to make a blunder um, and you're going to, you know, you're likely to lose or misuse uh, the things you have. So the first one is practical wisdom. It's the knowledge of what is truly good for you. The second one is courage, and that's not you know the courage to go into battle, battle and, and start you know killing people or all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's a moral courage. So it's the courage to do the right thing under circumstances where it's going to be difficult to do the right thing. Justice is the, the third virtue. Tells you what that right thing is, uh, and, it, and I can give an example in, in a minute. And then uh, finally, uh, temperance is the, the virtue that allows you to do things in right measure, neither too much nor too little. So, for instance, let's say that I'm at work and, and my boss is harassing a co-worker. The question that I'm facing from an ethical perspective is, should I intervene? Should I, should I do something? Should I say something? So let's interrogate the four virtues. Practical wisdom tells me that, yes, I should, because intervening in a situation like that is good for my character. Not intervening is bad for my character, because I'm, I'm not going to be do something that it's the right thing to do. That's not good for your character. So the first virtue says, yeah, you should, you should intervene. Courage. Well, yeah, it will take some courage to speak up to my boss, because I could face retaliation, right? I could be fired or at least reprimanded or, you know, something like that. So it takes courage. So courage says, yeah, you should uh, the third virtue is justice. Is it just? Well, justice for the Stoics means treating other people the way fairly and the way in which you would like to be treated. Would I like, if I were in that situation, being harassed by, boss, by my boss, would I like somebody to intervene on my behalf? Of course I would. So that is the just thing to do 
when I see somebody else in distress. And then finally, temperance. So I, I need to intervene, but I need to intervene in the right, in the right measure, in the right way. If I just mumble something under my breath so that my boss doesn't hear me, that's not enough. That's not enough of an intervention. On the other hand, at the opposite extreme, if I just lunge to my, to, uh, against my boss and start you know, punching him on the nose, that's a little too much of, an, of a reaction. That's not proportional to what's going on. So temperance tells me that I need to speak loudly and clearly, but, uh, but calmly. Uh, that's the way to, uh, to approach the situation. So all the four virtues agree, yes, I should intervene in that particular situation. And uh, one of the other uh, characteristics of Stoicism is uh, the notion of uh, not getting yourself too head up about things that you can't make a difference on. And, and you speak about this in How to Be a Stoic, um, ironically in some sense, by, uh, by talking about the uh, uh, Christian serenity prayer written by Reinhold Niebuhr. That's right. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Uh, my late grandfather had it uh, printed out and uh, stuck to the dashboard of his car, and so I, uh, I, I re remember it very, very vividly from my time spent with him. What is it in Stoicism that uh, uh, focuses on on that 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 distinction? So the uh, the what we we call it in Stoicism we call that the dichotomy of control, or sometimes the Stoic fork. You're right; it's the same exact sentiment as the serenity prayer, and in fact, the same idea pops up in other traditions. It's found in medieval Judaism and in eighth-century uh, Buddhism, which I take to be a good thing because whenever you know, I like to do some competitive uh, philosophy between different traditions, and whenever the same idea pops up over and over, um, that to me is an indication that there is something to be taken into consideration in that idea. So here's how the Stoics, uh, what the Stoics mean by it and, and how they apply it. Uh, the dichotomy of control basically says that there are some things that are, that are up to you, that, that really you can completely control, and other things that you cannot control, and that the right attitude is to focus on the first group, uh, you know, the stuff that you can control, and then develop an attitude of equanimity toward the second group. That is, accept that if something happens that is not under your control, you just accept it. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's how the world uh, goes. Now, the interesting question, however, is, well, what things exactly do we control or not control? And Epictetus is very explicit. He says right at the beginning of the Enchiridion, the handbook that I mentioned a few minutes ago, he says, um, uh, what is up to you are your judgments, your opinions, and your, your values, and your decisions to act or not to act. That's it. Nothing else. What is not up to you is your body, your reputation, your wealth, and pretty much everything else. Now, the first time you read that, it's like, what the heck, what is he talking about? Of course, the, my body is under my control. I can do all sorts of things uh, to take care of my body, right? I can, I can go to the gym and exercise. I can eat a healthy diet. I can go to the doctor on a regular basis and practice preventive uh, medicine. In, you know, in a pandemic, I can you know, wipe stuff down and wear a mask and, and, and sanitize my hands. What do you mean I can't, I can't control it? And Epictetus will say, yeah, you can, you can and should do all of that. But you should also be prepared for the fact that you do not completely control the outcome. You can control the efforts. Those are your, your decisions that you're implementing of doing certain things. Those, in fact, are up to you. But the outcomes are not. 
You can be as careful as you want and the virus might still get you. Or you can be as, as, as good as, as you want in terms of you know, eating healthy and going to the gym and then you just cross the street and the car hits you and you get to the hospital uh, because your bones are broken. So you don't control the outcomes. The only things that you do control are your deliberate decisions, your deliberate thinking. Uh, whatever it is that you decide to do, that really is up to you. Of course, there too, you are influenced by externals, right? So other people might try to convince you uh, to do one thing or, or the other. But as the Siddha says, the buck stops with you. It doesn't matter, you know, that other people tell you to do this or suggest to do that or advise this or that. Ultimately, it is your decision to act or not to act in a certain way. And so in practice, this turns into an exercise of internalization of your goals. So let me give you an example. Um, let's say that I go for a job interview tomorrow morning. Now, it would, it would be uh, coming, it's normal to, to worry about the outcome of the interview, right? Will I get the job? But according to the Stoics, that's exactly the wrong thing to worry about because it's not under your control. Um, you know, you can do the best interview you can, uh, but, but uh, if your boss uh, has uh, decided that, you know, he doesn't like you, future boss, uh, potential boss, doesn't like you or is in a bad mood because something happened to him or you just simply have better competition, uh, then you're not going to get the job. So what you should do instead is focus on what is under your control. What is under your control? Well, to put together the best resume possible, uh, to prepare for the interview, uh, to be focused during the interview, to you know, do everything that you, that you can that is in, under your, in your power to actually do the best performance. And then you have to just wait and see. Uh, as we all know, sometimes in life you, you win and sometimes you lose. And we're adults, we understand this, and we don't throw a tantrum if things don't go our way. We'll say, well, all right, I did my best, I didn't get the job. There will be other interviews, there will be other jobs. There's a lovely Marcus Aurelius uh, line that goes to that. He's content with two things. This is, he's talking about a wise person, to accomplish the present action with justice and to love the fate which has been allotted to him here and now. It seems almost supernaturally uh, uh, de detached, uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, you've, you've found yeah. that, uh, that that philosophy gives you a little bit more inner peace? It does. Um, it does. Uh, although I have to say, uh, the, the bit that you read from Marcus Aurelius, which uh, is, a, is a sentiment that is typical of the ancient Stoics, is one of the few places where I actually disagree with the ancient Stoics. Interesting. Yeah, I have a different take. Tell me more. So, um, in fact, I have a brand new book that's coming out, if you don't mind making the, making the, the, the plug. Fantastic. Yeah. On September 5th, mid-September, uh, a new book, it's called A Field Guide to a Happy Life. And basically what it is, is a section-by-section uh, -section rewriting of Epictetus and Caridian. The Enchiridion is a very short book. It's only 53 sections, and each section is like a paragraph or two long. Um, and what I did was not a new translation, because there are many very good translations out there, um, nor, nor simply a sort of rendition in modern English, because that's also been done. It's literally a rewriting and updating, meaning that I take every single subject matter that Epictetus uh, talks about, and I translate, I update the, the Stoic take to the 21st century, taking into account modern science, taking into account even modern, philo modern philosophy. And one of the, my points of disagreement is precisely with Epictetus is precisely uh, along the same lines that of the quote from Marcus that you read. So the ancient Stoics thought that uh, the universe is a living organism 
endowed with the capacity for reason, what they call the logos, okay? uh, which is a beautiful idea. I mean, it's, it's just like, I love the, the notion of the universe as a sentient being that does its own thing, and, and we are bits and pieces of, those, of that living organism. Like we are like individual cells of the organism. Each one of us does what it's supposed to be doing in order to uh, help the organism thrive and uh, survive and thrive. That's a great, that's a nice thought. Unfortunately, uh, you know, I'm a modern scientist. I don't believe that the universe is a living organism in that reason. I think the, the universe is a set of processes described by the laws of physics. Right? So now, what does that mean in terms of Stoicism? Well, the ancient Stoics uh, would derive, uh, could, could derive a notion of providence from this understanding that they had of essentially metaphysics. They would say, Phaedipithetus several times says, look, you're, you, if something un, uh, unpleasant happens to you, imagine that you are like a foot who has to, to step into the mud so that the body will cross the street. You're the foot and stepping into the mud is not pleasant. But if you realize, if you understand that you're doing this because the body has to get home and it has to cross a path that is muddy, then you can not only accept that you are stepping in the mud, but actually be glad, right? So it's, it's what Nietzsche much later on called amor fati, love your fate, right? So the Stoics, the ancient Stoics, don't just accept what's happening to them, they actually embrace it. They actually say, this is great. It doesn't matter that it's actually hurting me. I'm, I'm working for a greater purpose. I'm working for literally to help the universe do its, its thing, right? That's a great source of comfort. Unfortunately, as I said, this is not available to most people today, unless you happen to believe, uh, you know, to be a pantheist, essentially, to believe that God is the universe. And so what am I doing about that then? Well, I have to sort of, in a sense, tone it down, right? I have to say, look, uh, I'm not going to embrace my fate. I'm not going to love it if I'm going to be in pain or if I lose a loved one or anything like that. That's not, that's not possible for me. But... I still can use the stoic notion that, you know, whatever happens, happens, and your locus of action, your agency, lies in your decisions and in nothing else. And therefore, you, I can still uh, work toward developing that attitude of equanimity, of acceptance of things when they don't go my way, as well as of, of enjoying things when they do go my way, right? Um, I just can't be happy <laughs> about uh, about fate. I, I need to be more moderate in a sense and say, hey, sometimes stuff happens that you're not going to like. It, it's going to happen in life. You're going to, I'm going to lose. You know, I've lost, of course, already my father and my mother. I'm going to, I might lose some of my friends in the future. Um, and at some point, I myself am going to be gone. Well, that's all okay because it's in the nature of things. Am I happy about it? Like the, like Epictetus would be? No. <laughs> Not really, um, but it is in the nature of things. Now, the the positive part aspect of that uh, of, of this approach is exactly, in fact, something that Epictetus himself pointed out in a very um, poetic fashion. I think uh, there is a place in the Discourses, which is his other major book, um, where he says, "Don't hope, don't don't wish that uh, your friends or your loved ones were with you." when they're not, meaning either when they're dead or when they moved away to some, some, someplace else. Because that's like uh, wishing for figs in winter. And, you know, figs in winter are an impossibility. They're just not natural. 
However, figs are available in the summer, and you'd be a fool to take that for granted. You need to enjoy the figs in the summer because they're there for that particular season, and then they're going to be gone. The same goes for everything that we have, from material possessions to, most importantly, our friends and loved ones. We need to redouble our efforts to enjoy them when they're here, precisely because they're not going to be here forever, precisely because, you know, this is something that we take too, too much for granted. And I can tell you, this worked in a very interesting fashion for me when I lost my parents. I lost my, my father several years ago before I actually started practicing stoicism. And it was a very painful experience that I did not handle well. And I didn't handle it well because I knew, even though I knew exactly what was, what was happening, he, he suffered from multiple cancers over a period of years, and I'm a biologist, so I know exactly what that means. Um, but I just didn't take it seriously. I kept thinking, mm. yeah, well, but, you know, I can wait a few more months to go back to Rome and visit. It's okay. I mean, there's going to be time. There's going to be time until, of course, the point where there was no time anymore and I wasn't near my father when he, when he actually died. Then move forward several years. The, same very, the very same thing happens to my mother, both of them big smokers, by the way. And, uh, but by that time, I had actually embraced stoicism and I started practicing. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> I know what's going on here. I better react. I better keep in mind the figs in winter stuff. Um, and so I made a point of going back to Rome as much as I could, staying, uh, you know, with my mother, paying attention to what, to, to her, having a dialogue, conversations that, that I would not have otherwise had. And I, you know, it was still a sad thing, of course, when she died, but I was much more at peace with the whole process. Uh, because I, I knew what was happening. I was taking seriously what was happening, but at the same time, I was also acting on it. This is that uh, idea the Stoics sometimes talk about wherever it is possible to live, it is possible to live well. Yes. Uh, that we, we need, need, need to find the goodness in, in all moments. And I guess, as you've already pointed out, that's a particular challenge in the, uh, in the context of a pandemic, um, which again was, was something familiar to the, uh, to, to the Stoics. Uh, Marcus Aurelius writing at the time of the Antoine Plague, uh, which uh, yep. took million, millions of lives. Uh, they were aware of the importance of uh, finding the, 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 the good in moments uh, sur surrounded by, uh, by a lot of pain and suffering and death. Yes. One of the other things that I find fascinating about Stoicism is um, uh, the uh, ability to cultivate an indifference to how others think about you. Uh, and uh, <laughs> yeah. I was, was struck by a lovely post on the Modern Stoicism blog by Gregory Sadler, who was arguing that the drag queen RuPaul uh, is uh, one of the best uh, epitomes of Stoicism. Yeah. Uh, he, Gregory writes, uh, if drag queens can teach us anything, it's that what's popular isn't always right and what's right isn't always popular. Um, how have you found that, uh, that, that, that you've been able to cultivate uh, greater indifference to, uh, to the opinions of others? Uh, well, every time that I get on social media, <laughs> that's, yes. uh, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm very active on social media, uh, particularly on, on Twitter, because I think that, you know, social media, uh, for all the, the, the bad stuff that we keep hearing and writing about, uh, you know, they're tools and tools are inherently neutral. They're not good or bad. It's just what we make of them uh, that makes them good or bad. And sure, you can sort find all sorts of bad stuff out there on Facebook and Twitter and all that, that stuff. But you can also, they're, they're also very 
you know, incredible tools to reach other people, to have, com- I mean, I'm having conversations uh, with people that I don't know from the other side of the world. And, uh, you know, and people that don't know my work now know it because I am on social media. However, on a regular basis, of course, I get the person that gets pissed off at something that I wrote, that the person that is abusive, the person that is, you know, hurling insults and so on and so forth. And, you know, initially, again, before starting practice stories, and I kind of take, took that, that stuff somewhat personally. It's like, oh, what the, what the, what the hell? What do you mean? I didn't, I didn't write this or I didn't mean that, what, et cetera, et cetera. But now it's like, it, it becomes, it's, it has become automatic. It's like, um, okay, that's your opinion. Fine. Um, Epictetus says, um, so it's, so it seems to him. Uh, that's now my standard response. Fine. That's your opinion. I move on. I don't need to answer. I don't need, I used to be, you know, uh, obsessed, obsessive compulsive about answering people. And now I'm saying, no, this is my time. Another thing that Stoicism teaches you, Seneca in particular, is to be very aware of the fact that your time is limited and therefore mm. you need to use it well. And so I said, no, if, if the person, if I see that the person is genuinely interested in a conversation, generally curious and open to uh, possibilities, fine. I'll, I'll definitely engage. I think that that is my duty as, uh, as, as somebody who, who does essentially what, what uh, could be construed as public intellectualism. But if the person is not, uh, you know, is not interested, uh, he just wants to talk on his own uh, or is interested in, in more escalating things, that's it. Uh, I'm, I'm done with it. So this has been very, very useful. But it also prepares you. It's, a, it's an issue that, uh, you know, not, not caring so much about other people's opinions. It also prepares you whenever uh, on the job, let's say, you know, so I'm an academic, uh, I publish papers, but, you know, more likely than not, the first submission of a paper gets rejected. And the first time that that happened, and the second time, and the third time, uh, you know, early on in my career, it's hard not to take it seriously, uh, not, not to take it so personally. It's like, well, wait a minute, I thought I worked on this paper for, you know, a year or two or three, and I did the research, and, and it's well written, you know, what, what do you mean you didn't like it? What do you mean it's like, uh, it's not good, and so on, so on and so forth. But now, uh, the stoic attitude allows you to do two things. It's like, first of all, you don't need to take any of this personally. Uh, if somebody, let's say, insults you or, or criticizes you, uh, there's only two possibilities, really. Either he's right, as much as, as painful as that might be, it may be right, right? My, one of my papers may, in fact, be crap, and, and the reviewer may be correct in rejecting it. Um, if that's the case, then there's no point in me getting upset. What I should do, actually, is to thank the person for avoiding me an embarrassment or further embarrassment and for pointing out, perhaps, through his comments that there is a better way of doing things. That's the first possibility. The second possibility is that he's wrong. Well, if he's, if it's, if he's wrong, the joke is on him. He's the one that is, that is, you know, at fault here, not me. I can simply, you know, take the thing and go somewhere else and, you know, take the paper, let's say, and submit it somewhere else. And eventually it will get published if it is, if it is good. Um, but he is at fault. Uh, Pictetus has a really nice way of putting it. It's like, so if somebody, uh, doesn't know a syllogism, you know, doesn't handle a syllogism, which is a basic type of logical reasoning, is the fault of the syllogism? No, of course not. The fault is of the person who's making a mistake and the joke is on him. Once that you sort of start practicing this attitude and you remind yourself constantly whenever you encounter a criticism or even an insult that, look, there's only these two possibilities. Either I'm going to learn from something here or um, 
there is nothing to learn, therefore I need to move on. I guarantee you things get far easier, you don't get upset. In fact, uh, Epictetus in the, in the uh, first section of the Enchiridion makes a promise. He says, if you take seriously uh, this notion of the dichotomy of control, uh, that certain things are up to you and other things are not up to you, if you really take it seriously, you, you really live by it, you will never criticize anybody, you will never get upset, you will never get disappointed. And the reason for that is because you will be focusing on doing the best that you can and nothing else is going to matter. Nothing else is going to uh, get in the way of, of, your, of your day, so to speak. In cultivating uh, a sense of indifference to how others think about you, uh, the Stoics were famous for putting on unfashionable tunics and going down to the public square and walking around uh, just in order to uh, to ensure that uh, uh, they built up that sense that their outside garb didn't matter and they shouldn't be embarrassed by it. Right. Is there some modern parallel we sh- we can uh, draw from that, or I mean, should we dress up in uh, in, in unfashionable clothes every now and then uh, our- ourselves? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a good question. So Seneca actually says that we should, from time to time, do, in, do something like that, that, that we should uh, you know, go out underdressed, let's say, in the cold, uh, skip meals, or doing sort of what uh, modern Stoics refer to as mild exercises in self-deprivation. And I stress the mild part. Um, you don't want to imperil your, your health in doing these kind of things. Um, now, why would you want to do that? Uh, because, for two reasons fundamentally. First of all, because it turns out that you are probably tougher than you think. That you can be without, you know, food for a day or, 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 or two. Or you can withstand the cold, uh, you know, and, and walk outside uh, underdressed and that sort of stuff. It's, it's okay. You can do it. You, there are all sorts of things that we get used to and we, we think that they are absolutely indispensable, but they're not. But the second aspect, the positive aspect, the positive reason for doing this is essentially in, in uh, uh, an exercise in gratitude. It's like nothing tastes so good after, you know, two days of fasting. You know, if, if you come back home and you get just bread and soup, those, those are going to be the best bread and soup you've ever had in your life uh, because you're hungry. And uh, if you... Uh, Go out and, and um, in the cold weather and you're underdressed, then you will definitely appreciate better the fact that you can afford a coat or that you have a warm you know, apartment to come back to and that sort of stuff. So, so these, they all become exercises in appreciation of what you have. Because unfortunately, modern psychologists agree, uh, they call this the hedonic treadmill. We get used to things far too quickly and then take them for granted, both things and people. In fact, the whole notion that is popular, especially in, in American society, of retail therapy, the fact that you shop in order to feel better, if you think about it, that's insane, except from the point of view of a corporation that is selling you the goods, of course. But, like, no, why would buying new stuff uh, somehow help me with my existential problems or, or, or make me feel better with respect to, to, to actual problems, to real problems that, that I might have? Um, what the Stoics and modern psychologists are saying is like, don't do that. Instead, on purpose, do without things once in a while. Like, you know, you're particularly fond of your smartphone, for instance. Okay, well, for 24 hours, put it away. And, and then when you come back to it, you say, oh my gosh, I have a smartphone. I have this incredible gadget that has all sorts of all the information of the world at my fingertips. And I don't appreciate it normally. I take it for granted. Uh, I just watch. Uh, I, you know, I just use it to watch uh, videos of cats or something like that. 
Yes, I'm uh, always struck by, uh, I finish my showers with a blast of cold water and uh, how much you uh, you enjoy putting on warm clothes just after, after doing that. Uh, you again, you don't take it for granted. Um, Massimo, I assume that as a someone trained as a scientist, you don't believe in free will, uh, that you would uh, take the standard scientific view that our, our brains are basically meat computers and we have no more control over the operations of our neurons than we have over the operations of the bacteria in our gut. And I'm wondering, first of all, if that's the case, and, and if so, how you square that with your, uh, your interest in philosophy. Yeah, I, you're right. I don't believe in free will in that sense. Uh, that's called um, uh, contra-causal free will, meaning free will that is uh, free of causes, right? That, 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 that my decisions are actually uncaused by any kind of external circumstances. I don't, I don't believe that. Uh, well, the reason, one of, one of the reasons that uh, Doicism actually struck a good chord with me is precisely because metaphysically speaking, uh, they got a lot of things right. I mentioned earlier one of the things that I think they got wrong, although understandably so, at the time, and that's the, the notion that the universe is a living organism endowed with reason. That one, they, I think they got wrong. Um, but a lot of other things they got right, they were materialists, they thought that everything is made of stuff, matter, uh, whatever matter is, and, you know, in modern parlance, matter is whatever the physicists tell us it is, uh, but things are made of stuff, so there's no supernatural, there's no you know, transcendent anything. Uh, they also were believers in universal web of cause and effect, which, of course, goes very well with modern practice of, of science. In terms of free will, they had an interesting position which modern philosophers would recognize as uh, a compatibilist position. Compatibilism is the notion that uh, you do accept that, that the universe is deterministic, that things happen as a result of cause and effect, but you also realize that that doesn't mean that you don't make your own decisions about things. And so here's the, the way it works. Um, Chrysippus, who was the third head of the store, of the ancient store in Athens, and uh, he was also a great logician, uh, put forth this interesting analogy. He says, um, so imagine that there is in front of you a, a cylinder you know, made of metal, and, uh, and you push the cylinder. What, what happens if you push the cylinder? And of course, the cylinder is going to roll. And then, a bit, and then Chrysippus says, so why, did, why is the cylinder rolling? And of course, the answer is, well, because I pushed it. And then Chrysippus says, well, not entirely, is it? Um, it's not just because you pushed it. It's also because it is a cylinder. It is in the nature of cylinders to respond to being pushed by rolling. If instead of a cylinder, you have a cube, and you push a cube, the cube is not going to roll. It's going to do something else. It's either not going to move at all, or it's going to do a sort of stepwise thing, but it's certainly not going to roll. So in other words, what's happening there, the outcome uh, of, you know, the result of the action is, um, is the outcome of a set of external conditions, external causes, and internal causes. And Chrysippus says the same goes with the human mind. When we make decisions, when we decide to, you know, get up and go to the refrigerator and get a beer, let's say, um, that action is certainly determined, meaning that it is the result of cause and effect. But some of those causes are internal to you, and some of them are external to you. For instance, an external cause could be, hey, look at that, it's 91 degrees out there, it's really hot, I need, I, I, I'm thirsty. Um, some of the internal causes might be, oh, Thirst itself, which is a physiological reaction, 
Um, and then my decision to say, okay, I'd rather have a beer or do I want some water or do I want something else? Those are actually internal parts of the internal causality. So how what the Stoics think in terms of free will is that it's not free, but it is a will. Uh, in fact, the, the word that they use is prohiresis, which is Greek for volition. Essentially, they thought that we are incredibly sophisticated, self-correcting, decision-making machines. And I think that's a very modern way of looking at things. Uh, yes, we are machines in the sense that, you know, input-output, we make decisions as a result of causality, for sure. Uh, but that internal mechanism there is very sophisticated, it's incredibly complicated, much more complicated than, you know, a bacterium or a plant or most other animals, or even a computer, for that matter. Um, and moreover, it is uh, our volition, our will, is something that it actually is uh, recursive. It can be applied to itself. I can make decisions about my decision-making process. I can decide to try to improve my decision-making process. There's nothing, still nothing magical about it. It's still nothing outside of cause and effect. But it, makes, but it opens up infinite possibilities in terms of what the human mind can do. Uh, in terms of coming up with, with decisions. Yes, they're the result of cause and effect, but in a very, very, very interesting ways. Now, that's fascinating and uh, really interesting also to hear you drawing that wisdom on the, the cylinder versus cube metaphor from, uh, from the ancients. Uh, it, it always strikes me how much we have to learn from them. Uh, and the, the irony in some sense that we draw so much of our wisdom from a group of people who had no idea what happened to the sun when it uh, went down at night time. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, so, so this is an interesting point. I mean, often people ask me, uh, wait a minute, why, why should we find any value in, in stuff that people wrote 2,000 years or, or two and a half millennia ago? And, and I said, well, it depends on the stuff. I am not suggesting that we study, let's say, Aristotle's physics, because Aristotle's physics is, of course, being superseded by modern physics. No question about it, right? He was very smart for the time, but, you know, there's no, there's no point in trying to study Aristotle's physics as if it were, other than for historical uh, reasons, right? As if it were actual science, modern science. Not. However, when it comes to ethics, turns out that human beings today are not that different from human beings two and a half millennia ago. We have the same problems. We have the same, sure, we live in a technological society and all, the, you know, we have social media, we, we have atomic bombs and all that sort of stuff. But fundamentally, human nature hasn't changed. We still want the same things. We're still afraid of the same things. We say, still behave in pretty much the same way. There's a passage in uh, Seneca, in one of Seneca's letters to his friend Lucilius, that struck me as particularly interesting from that perspective. He says, he, he's complaining to his friend, uh, that he can't write because there is all this noise coming from the street in Rome. And he, you know, he doesn't know how to deal with this. And I say, oh, yeah, welcome to my world, my friend. You know, I live in New York. <laughs> there is a lot of noise coming down from the street, and I have to deal with the same exact problem that Seneca had to deal with you know, 2,000 years ago. We still we want love. We want friends. We want external possessions you know, like money and fame and stuff like that. We still, we're still dealing with the same stuff. We still make war in the same way, you know, not in the same way technologically, but in the same way in terms of principles as they did 2,000 years ago. I've been rereading uh, recently for another project, for, for a new book, uh, uh, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Hmm. And one of the things that strikes you if you read that book is how similar it is 
to what's happening today. What to the, you know, pick any war from the 20th century or the 21st century, and you can basically uh, transport Thucydides uh, to modern times, and he will be still talking in the same way. Of course, he's not talking, not in terms of the weapons, right? Uh, we're not using spears and, 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 and daggers anymore and shields, um, but the motivations for doing so, the way in which people react under adversity, the, the way, you know, the courage of certain people and the cowardice of other people, that's still the same. It hasn't changed. It's the exact same thing. That's why not just philosophies like Stoicism, but also religions like Christianity or Buddhism and so on and so forth, those, those are still valid today, two and a half millennia, two millennia, two and a half millennia later, because they don't talk about, they're not, they're not teaching us, as Galileo used to, uh, famously said, they're not teaching us how the world goes, right? How the heaven goes, but how to go to heaven. And, uh, you know, they're not teaching us about science. They're teaching us about ethics. And ethics, in the broadest possible sense, is really about how to live our life. And that's the, the most pressing question you can possibly have is exactly that one. You know, how do I live my life? Because I have one, and it's, and it's going to be short. There's a period of time, and I need to make the, make the best out of it. What do I do? How do I do that? Uh, that question is not changed uh, over the last several millennia. Massimo, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Ha! Um, <laughs> that's an interesting one. Um, I would say just be patient. Things will happen. Uh, I was a very impatient kid. And sometimes I rushed, even as a young adult, I rushed into things that uh, with, you know, after the fact turned out not to be necessarily a good idea. Um, it's, to some extent, I guess that's inevitable. That's what it means to be young. Um, but, um, but I would say, look, listen to myself. I'm, I'm now, I'm you, uh, but I'm 56 years old. And trust me, um, you, can, you can slow down. You can take your time. You can smell the roses. Uh, things will still happen. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, oh, lots of things. Um, one of which, of course, is that I used to believe that there is some kind of transcendental entity out there uh, that actually wants my, my well-being, and that I, I haven't believed in a, in a long time. Um, I also used to believe that, uh, that we, we march inevitably toward progress, um, not only technological progress, but, but sort of moral progress. Things are getting better and better. I don't believe that anymore. I think that progress is something that we have to fight in order to achieve and then to fight in order to retain. Uh, it's, uh, human beings are, you know, have an easy tendency to slide back. Uh, I've been reading recently a book on um, the rise of fascism in Italy uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And, you know, it... At that time, before, right before that time, the country was going in an interesting direction. And then all of a sudden, things went down to hell. And it takes very little for things to go back down to hell. So, so I don't believe anymore that uh, we can be complacent about that sort of stuff. Yes, it, it feels only uh, recently we were talking about a democratic recession. And then suddenly <laughs> we've got the, uh, the real economic recession as well. Uh, uh, yeah. Very much an illustration of what you're talking about. When are you most happy? Um, when I am home reading a book next to my wife. Do you have any guilty pleasures? 
I try to stay, you know, one of, part, part of the, 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 the stoic practice is not to feel guilty about anything. <laughs> um, but I, but I, I guess I still do. Um, my guilty pleasure probably is some good Japanese whiskey that I, that I nurture on like Saturday evenings after, before going to bed. And finally, Massimo, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, that's easy. My, uh, my adoptive grandfather. Uh, his name was Tino. Uh, he was my grandmother's uh, you know, husband, second husband, actually early on companion and then husband, which for the time was something unheard of. Um, he was the kindest person uh, I have ever met. Um, he was not particularly educated. You know, he had a high school diploma, um, but he was uh, he was convinced that education was crucial, was important. He always treating me in the best way possible. He was attentive to the fact that, that I had certain interests uh, early on in science and he started uh, facilitating those interests much more than so than anybody else, including my parents. Um, and I never, ever remember him losing his temper or treating, you know, mistreating somebody. Massimo Piliucci, scientist turned philosopher and author of How to Be a Stoic and the forthcoming A Field Guide to a Happy Life, Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Martha Nussbaum, Dalton Conley and Elaine de Baton. We appreciate getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.